Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the 1960s, humans took their first steps away from Earth, and for a time our possibilities in space seemed endless. But in a time of austerity, and in the wake of high-profile disasters like Challenger, that dream seems to have ended. In early 2011, Margaret Lazarus Dean traveled to Cape Canaveral for NASA's last three space shuttle launches in order to bear witness to the end of an era. In her new book, Leaving Orbit, she serves as our guide to Florida's space coast and the history of NASA, taking the measure of what American space flight has achieved, meeting NASA workers, astronauts, and space fans, gathering answers to the question, what does it mean that a spacefaring nation won't be going to space anymore? Margaret Dean is winner of Grey Wolf Press Nonfiction Prize for Leaving Orbit. Previous books include The Time It Takes to Fall. She's a recipient of fellowships from the NEA and Tennessee Arts Commission and is an associate professor of English at University of Texas, University of Tennessee, I should say, lives in Knoxville. And uh, Margaret Dean, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. We appreciate you uh, being with us. This is of special interest uh, you know, to Americans, to anyone uh, on the planet, and uh, special interest in Utah. We have uh, northern Utah here, not too far away from our studios, is, uh, is the location for Thiokol. Which uh, produced the rockets and uh, and the the rockets that are tested now by ATK. It's still a big deal here when when they get uh, get tested. Um, very interesting book. I wonder if you take us back to uh, to your beginnings here. Um, you uh, your, your parents got separated, divorced, and uh, your your childhood became structured. You say in the book, and part of weekends was going to the Air and Space Museum. Yeah, that's right. When my parents were separated, uh, you know, there's an idea that on visitation, you know, the non-custodial parent takes the children um, every other weekend, and we we began that kind of structure. Um, and I think it was starting then. My father felt like, well, we should have a destination. You know, there should be a, a place that we go, not just sit around the house. Um, and the one place that we could all agree on was the Air and Space Museum Um which is part of the Smithsonian in, in Washington, D.C. Um, and that just became a really big part of my childhood. We went there over and over and over again. I've seen all the exhibits many times. I got to know the, the IMAX films they showed there. And I, I think all of that sort of space knowledge and interest kind of sunk in at a really deep level. I didn't, I didn't always know it was there, but it's, mm-hmm. it's come back out in my adulthood. It's it's fun uh, seeing these things through through the eyes of a child. You you as a child, so you know hanging uh, in, in the big atrium is the spirit of St. Louis and the Wright Flyer and Friendship uh, Seven, all got dust on them, which is it's kind of a metaphor. I guess yeah. I mean it's a it's a beautiful thing in many ways that that we've been able to preserve all of these things. I mean especially a Wright Flyer. That's really remarkable. Those things were. Um, really delicate, and I think people didn't entirely understand their significance at the time. But yeah, at the same time, seeing them all kind of jumbled together in one space, the the museum is is better laid out and makes more sense now, I think, than it did when I was a child in the 70s. Mm. Um, and I think they're doing a better job of keeping dust off the exhibits. <laughs> but I, I do remember having that impression of, you know, all of these planes, all of these spacecraft. They're just kind of all here, but it wasn't clear which came first and how did one lead to the next, you know, especially to a really young child. Mm. 
that just wasn't clear at all. And somehow that confusion became part of my impression of spaceflight. Especially responded to your your father showing you Apollo 11, the, the capsule. I don't know if it still is. It's on the floor. You can actually, I don't know, if you can touch it, you can look into it. It's exactly as I described. They have not moved it. Um, it's encased in plexiglass, so you can't um, actually smudge it with your fingers, which is a good thing. But it's it's on the floor. As I say, you can walk right up to it, walk around it. You can kind of peer into the hatch and see um, all of the switches and, and the couches where, where the astronauts were strapped in. Um, and there's something I find really appealing about that way of displaying it. You can really get right up to it. It's not something that you look up to on a pedestal. Um, you know, so many of the displays at that museum are hung from the ceiling, and that's effective, you know, for, for an aircraft to kind of make sense for it to be hovering mm-hmm. in the air. But I, I've always really appreciated that that capsule from Apollo 11 is, is something that you can really get close to and kind of get a sense of what it might have felt like to, to climb into it. Uh, I learned something here. It's, it's kind of, I mean, it's futuristic, but it's old school, too. You, you're, you know, the, the men are squeezed in there. And so your your dad points out, Neil Armstrong sat here, Michael Collins here, Buzz Aldrin here. And you can imagine the the, the hole, uh, you know, kind of seems fragile as all that's, that's between them and, and the vacuum of space. Yeah, it's really tiny. And, and the, the technology definitely aged quickly. I mean, I, I think we we think of a, a spacecraft that can go to the moon as being really cutting edge technology but in many ways NASA was relying on technology that had already been proven so in many ways the stuff that we sent to the moon was more like 1950s technology um, than it was 1969 and so looking at that stuff even just from 10 years on after the moon landings it looked really old to me it looked older than you know the computer that my father had or you know the sort of consumer electronics that were already around by the late 70s. And, and that's a really interesting contrast, too, to see this artifact of such a huge technological achievement, but it l- already looked clunky and outdated. There's a passage I'm going to have you read a little later. You're, you're, uh, you fell in love with a, a film there at the IMAX Center, Dream is Alive. But uh, I wonder if I could have you read, uh, this is from the end of the prologue, and this just page 9, just to have you change from what we uh, told you before the program. But... Uh, uh, you talk about a photograph that's above your desk. Okay. Um, yeah, on page nine. I'm actually standing in my office right now, so I can see that. Oh, go oh, great. As I read. <laughs> above my desk is a photograph of the stainless steel plaque that rests on the sea of tranquility on the surface of the moon. Printed on it are these words. Here, men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind. Is this not stirring? Rarely is such grandiose language earned by such specific and deliberate action, and this action is the counterbalance to the legacy of the failures. Few Americans were aware of it at the time, but looking back, we can see that the beginnings of the end of spaceflight were already present at the triumphant moment of Apollo 11, the funding already reduced, the goals already compromised, three dead astronauts already martyred to the cause. In the future, 14 more will die, and the shuttle project will never entirely recover from their deaths. But the plaque knows nothing of all that, and I love it for that reason, for the vigorous simplicity of its language. I love the language of spaceflight, the go and the no-go, the translunar injection burn, the nod and the twang, the names Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, the sonorousness of the very acronym NASA. These are the sounds of dreams. Can we who were not there be blamed for wondering whether it was all a dream? Hmm. 
So you set out in 2011 to, uh, to to bear witness, I suppose you could say, to the last three shuttle flights. This is the, you know, the end of the shuttle, and uh, I guess sort of the end of the, the dream. That's right, and I, I did use that term, to bear witness, although it seems a bit grandiose, that it felt like something so big and important was ending, and it wasn't really being talked about in the way that I felt like it should be, the the sort of pinnacle of American spaceflight, which most people would agree was Apollo 11, that was so incredibly well documented and so thoroughly discussed. Um, it seemed like a weird contrast that now we're kind of reaching the other end of the story. We're just letting this peter out. Um, and I, I didn't feel this surge of interest or this um, sort of narrative making that there was around Apollo 11. And so I felt like someone really needed to go there and see those launches and talk to people who come out for the launches and talk to people who actually worked on these spacecraft with their own hands and talk to astronauts and and try to tell the story in a way similar to the way that um, journalists of a previous generation tried to tell the story of Apollo 11. Mm. And I wasn't sure I was the right person to do this. In fact, I really hoped that I wasn't because it seemed like a huge undertaking and I didn't want to have to do it. Um, but as time went on, I sort of convinced myself, this is a story that I can tell. I would like to be the one to tell. It would be a privilege to be the one to tell it. Mm. Um, and I've really been surprised to see since the end of the shuttle, um, I haven't really seen any other books that, that try to address this in the same way. So now I'm especially glad that I did. If I if I hadn't, the this, this story might not have been told in this way at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe I skip uh, skip forward uh, to your epilogue. You tell us a, a brief story of your you took your husband and, and son out to out to Space Coast. You were served as their guide, I suppose, and and your son gets a glimpse of Atlantis. I, I guess Atlantis is there. Going to stay there. Well, this is at the moment when, after Atlantis' last landing, it oh, okay. went mm-hmm. into the vehicle assembly building to be cleaned up um, to, to go to its final display, which is, it's now on display at the Kennedy Space Center. But it was kind of just hanging out in the VAB as a, as a garage in between, and that's when we got to see it in there. And as I guess as any child would, his eyes get big. He, he's, he can't quite believe what he's seeing. Yeah, it's, it's a strange sight to, I mean, even... Even though we knew it was going to be there, to to walk into this enormous space and to see this spacecraft um, just sitting on its wheels, you know, as as planes do, but um, to know where it's been and and what it's accomplished, it's is pretty awe inspiring. Hmm. And to know that there were you know people were on board and went to space and came back. Yeah, and the, it's it's hard to explain actually to a child, you know, why this is so special. Children. My son's age, you know, were born into the end of the shuttle era, so as, as long as they've been alive, shuttles have, have been flying and, and have been old, have been sort of old news. Um, so it's sort of, it's there, it's boring, but at the same time, it's really exciting to learn about what have astronauts been able to do using this, these spacecraft, what what have we been able to discover and what we've been able to accomplish is, is still really awe-inspiring even if the spacecraft themselves have, have been around so long that they no longer seem new. Hmm. Is this, do you think, I don't know, is there there's something essentially questing in human nature? Will we eventually overcome the obstacles? It's, it seems to be, I don't know, cost or we've lost interest or 
or we're worried about safety. I, I don't know what, what it is, but um, will we eventually overcome that? Will there always be people, you know, questing the next trip to Mars, et cetera? Well, this, is, this kind of language I, I heard a lot at the end of the shuttle era, um, and especially going to these events, going to last launches. Um, I went to the last landing of Atlantis. I went to um, the museum openings as the orbiters were, were introduced as museum exhibits. And at each of these events, speeches were given that would contain that kind of language. It's, in, it's human nature to explore and to see what's beyond the next hill. I also keep hearing um, there's something uniquely American about that desire to explore, that you know, we, are, we are a people who see a frontier and we want to see what's on the other side of it and that that's, that's part of what it means to be an American. I, you know, I, I find that language kind of bewildering, honestly, in a context of shutting down the one spacecraft that we have as Americans. It seems a bit contradictory to say, this is in our nature. We're an exploring people, and we're here today because we're putting our last spaceship into a museum. There seems like an inherent contradiction there. I, I would love to think that we are inherently a questing, exploring people, that we have a, a scientific curiosity that we want to spend money on um, rather than just a, a kind of military spending, that, which, we, you know, spaceflight has often sort of served both purposes simultaneously. But, um, you know, it's, it's hard to accept that as an idea when it, it doesn't seem as though we're willing to spend the money on it. At the same time, the private companies are are taking up the charge of, creating spacecraft that can get humans from the Earth up to low Earth orbit, up to the International Space Station. Um, and that's exciting to see that they have been able to live up to the promises of being able to take over. Um, SpaceX has done a great job, I think, of hitting all of their deadlines um, and showing that they can get human beings back to that International Space Station from Cape Canaveral. Um, but I, you know, I and many, many space fans want to go to Mars and mm. don't see how that's going to happen without without a really big policy change. Can Could a private company get us to Mars, or is that a big enough project that would have to be a national or international project? I, you know, there, there may be private companies that would want to explain to me how, how they can do this in, in a way that would make sense financially. Any sort of viable Mars plan I've ever seen is just so insanely expensive. It would cost billions and billions of dollars. And there would be no return for it. You know, you spend all that money, you get people to Mars, um, you bring them back safely, and you don't get your money back. So it seems like the kind of project that really makes sense for a big federal government that cares about this kind of project. That's how we got to the moon. Um, that's how we've accomplished, uh, you know, a lot of the engineering feats that this country has accomplished. We've done as a nation through the federal government. Um, this seems to me like like one of those. Um, uh, you know, others may want to correct me. Maybe there's a really cheap and modular way to get to Mars. But as as far as my education takes me, it would be a hugely expensive and um, not at all remunerative process. We'll take a break now and we'll come back more from uh, Margaret Dean. She's author of a new book, very interesting, Leaving Orbit, Notes from the Last Days of American Spaceflight. And uh, she's asking uh, a very interesting, important question. What does it mean that a spacefaring nation won't be going to space anymore? She went and, uh, and witnessed the last three uh, shuttle flights and uh, connects this up to her childhood in the way I think a lot of us uh, do as well. 
Uh, we'll talk more about this. We'll hear uh, some clips as well, including uh, John F. Kennedy's We Cho- Choose to Go to the Moon and uh, some other clips as well as we go along here. You're welcome to join the conversation, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. The link between a conductor... All you can do is move air around... ...and the orchestra... ...upwards of 100 people... ...is not only music, but trust. So, of course, the trust, it's actually the most fundamental gel in every single human relationship. And without trust, no relationship can really flourish. I'm Guy Raz. Trust, next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan featuring a new spring menu. Open for breakfast 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. and lunch 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Saturday, Sunday brunch 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Menu information available at cafeibis.com. In the 1960s, humans took their first steps away from Earth. And for a time, our possibilities in space seemed endless. But in a time of austerity, in the wake of high-profile disasters like Challenger, that dream seems to have ended. In 2011, Margaret Lazarus Dean traveled to Cape Canaveral for NASA's last three space shuttle launches in order to bear witness to the end of an era. In her new book, Leaving Orbit, she serves as a guide to our Florida's space coast, the history of NASA asking the question, what does it mean that a space-faring nation won't be going to space anymore? Let's hear a clip we've, uh, we've pulled off of uh, YouTube. This is John F. Kennedy. This is him outlining uh, his bold vision. William Bradford, speaking in 1630 of the founding of the Plymouth Bay Colony, said that all great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulty, and both must be enterprised and overcome with answerable courage. If this capsule history of our progress teaches us anything, it is that man in his quest for knowledge and progress is determined and cannot be deterred. The exploration of space will go ahead. Whether we join in it or not, we mean to be a part of it. We mean to lead it. For the eyes of the world, Now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. Our leadership in science and industry, our hopes for peace and security, our obligations to ourselves as well as others, all require us to make this effort, to solve these mysteries, to solve them for the good of all men. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. So this is John F. Kennedy. This is the early 60s. He's, I believe he's at Rice University in Houston, 
a hot day. And if you see the the video, you can see the vice president uh, mopping his brow in the background. By the way, that that, that clip that we uh, found had the had the music added. It wasn't part of the, the original uh, speech. But uh, we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, because because it's hard. This was a bold vision and and galvanized the nation, and and we did it. That's such a great line, isn't it? I mean, it's it's a great way to get people excited about a project that was going to take years to accomplish and that we didn't really know yet how we were going to do it. Um, but by phrasing it that way made it feel like a, a bold and exciting and kind of inherently American thing to do. That was that was such a great speech. And uh, so I don't know what difference in time. I guess we've already done it. We've already gone to the moon. But um doesn't seem to be that vision, at least a vision galvanizing enough to overcome the political obstacles. I, I wonder who, who gets to determine the vision now. Well, there were political obstacles at the time, too. And, in fact, it's odd if, if you go back and kind of look at what John F. Kennedy was actually interested in himself before Sputnik. He was not really interested in going to space as a nation. It was really not on his to-do list. His, his vice president was was probably the, the biggest um, booster that spaceflight has ever had in the federal government. But Kennedy himself, not so much into it. And after um, the Soviets launched Sputnik, and then especially once it was clear they were racing to put a human being into space first, um, a first that they went on to accomplish, it became more and more clear that we had to do something to, to counter that as, as part of the Cold War. Um, so Kennedy really dragged his feet. I mean, there are, there are memos that he wrote, you know, just within his cabinet saying, like, is there any way we can get out of joining the space race? Is there anything smaller we can do than the moon? He he personally did not want that to be his thing, um, but was sort of backed into it by political circumstance. And I think the huge support that it had, at least at first, um, within Congress just came from that same impulse. People were scared that the Soviets were going to get to the moon and that they were going to be able to throw bombs down on us from the moon. Now, any physicist will tell you that that is not actually a problem to lie awake worrying about, but people did lie awake worrying about it, and that made them want to pay for a huge space program. And so NASA has really kind of ridden on that early enthusiasm that was based partly on fear for all of these years. If if we had a real opponent in space, I think we would suddenly be able to find the money again. Um, but that, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I thought very astutely, if the Chinese, who they've, they've expressed interest, right, in going to the moon, if, if they, I guess, were seen as credible, maybe we'd be ramping up right now. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, even beyond them starting a, a peaceful moon project of their own, I think if their aim were to go to the moon and pull up the American flags we put there, for instance, that, you know, that, that sort of thing is, is inspiring. Um, or if they wanted to get to Mars and declare Mars part of their country, and then, you know, we would have to imagine, if, well, if we ever want to go to Mars, then that would become an issue. Um, that sort of thing is what has been inspiring to spend lots of money on spaceflight in the past. Hmm. So, yeah, maybe that that's what it's going to take at this point. So maybe we, I guess it's the tendency of history to put a kind of a gloss on history, but yeah, as you look back on the age of exploration, for example, discovering the new world, it, it, was, it was sort of a, it was a land race, wasn't it? 
Spain had to get there because Portugal might get there first. Right. It was it was a land grab, and it had to do with uh, with an idea that there was lots of gold there. Um, it had to do with taking slaves. It's a it, it's easy to look back and paint a nicer picture than than what was actually going on. Let's uh, let's hear another clip. This is uh, as I was thinking about this. We were thinking about this. The staff were here. Um, we our minds, I guess, maybe maybe naturally went to Star Trek. Let's hear this. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. So, you know, as we know, Gene Roddenberry had a very optimistic vision. Uh, that, you know, the nations finally came together as a unified world. We're exploring uh, out of science and, and questing and, and peace. That's a very utopian view, which which we haven't uh, probably even come close to. Uh, but that's uh, I guess that's one view of how it how it could go in in the distant future. Well, there there has been a lot of international cooperation in spaceflight, um, starting all the way back in 1975 after the Apollo program was over. They had some sort of uh, leftover rockets that they were figuring out what to do with. And one of the things they did was called the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project, where they um, attached a, a, a dock, basically, that would allow an Apollo spacecraft to dock with a, a Soviet Soyuz capsule. And they, they did just that. They launched, um, you know, they coordinated the launches so they could get in the same orbit. They docked together. They opened the airlock. They hugged in space. It was. It felt like the beginning of the end of the Cold War to a lot of people. Um, and right now, you know, our, our major human spaceflight project is still the International Space Station. Six people are living in space um, and have been doing so since November of 2000 nonstop. It's an international crew, some Americans, some Russians, some Europeans, um, sometimes Japanese astronauts. And that is, you know, in a, in a microcosm, it's, it's not a, obviously, is as big as, as what Gene Roddenberry dreamed of, but I think Gene Roddenberry would be happy looking at the, the makeup of a typical International Space Station crew is, is very international and I think has done a lot to build goodwill among these countries um, in addition to, you know, sharing useful scientific and technical knowledge among these countries. Let me read this email from Steve. By the way, we're talking with Margaret Dean. She's author of a Interesting new book, Leaving Orbit, Notes from the Last Days of American Spaceflight. And one of the key questions that she's asking people, trying to answer, is what does it mean that a spacefaring nation won't be going to space anymore? Uh, here's what Steve says. So long as the country is stuck with a major political party dead set against all non-military spending, including even infrastructure, one must think that there is no chance that the space program will be revived in a meaningful way. But can we infer from the enormous popularity of such recent space exploration movies as Gravity and Interstellar that the American people themselves continue to have a vital interest in exploring space and that if the political deck in Washington were reshuffled, the United States could get to back in the game? Um, those are both really interesting questions. I mean, I, I feel like in looking at the history of spaceflight, almost from the beginning, each 
party or sort of political ideology has blamed the other for not getting us further in space. Um, you know, the, the president who first declared the goal of going to the moon and, and who authorized the, the first team in space flights um, was a Democrat, maybe one of the most Democratic Democrats we've ever had. Um, but since then, neither party has really been, uh, has really put a lot of political capital into spaceflight. And so it's almost one of these litmus tests, you know, whichever whichever party you happen to align with more, you tend to blame the other for the fact that we're not going to space anymore. Um, but in fact, it's, it's very hard to find any kind of real political coalition behind this. There are individual politicians who are in districts that depend a lot on spaceflight or individual politicians who really just make this their thing. Um, but neither party has been the party to rescue spaceflight. Really, since the very beginning, we, we've really just been coasting from, from that original charge to go to the moon. Um, about science fiction films, I mean, I, I hear two different interpretations of, like, a, a, an optimistic one and a pessimistic one. Some people say, well, the, you know, the fact that people flock to go see movies like Gravity and Interstellar, I enjoyed watching both of those movies myself, the fact that people want to see that is an indication that we still feel this draw, we still feel this love of spaceflight, and if we want to see that on the big screen, maybe that means we'll want to pay for it in real life. I hear other people say, well, if the money that had been spent making Gravity and Interstellar had been given to NASA instead, maybe we would have been able to save the shuttle. You know, in, in other words, we'd rather see these kind of fictionalized, dramatized visions of spaceflight than the expensive, you know, often boring workaday work of getting spacecraft into space. So I, I, I can see both interpretations. I'd, I'd, I'd rather interpret the more optimistic one, but, but I, I think both of them hold some water. You talk about in the book, you talk about a frustrating feedback loop is what you call it, uh, which starts with us electing congressmen and women who don't support the space program, if indeed that's what we support. And and then then it loops from there. Then the the you know the budget gets cut, and the NASA doesn't perform the way we think they ought to, and it, it's it's a it's a loop. Right. I mean, I think we tend to blame NASA for decisions like ending shuttle. When I don't, I mean, first of all, just when you say NASA, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in many sites across the country and many important contractors, like your contractor there in Utah, who participate in the work in, in important ways. Not all of NASA agrees on any big decision like ending shuttle, but a, a decision like that really was a, a decision of Congress. Congress decided, and this is based on the um, Columbia Accident Investigation Board, Congress decided we're going to stop funding shuttle after 2010. That wasn't NASA. You know, the NASA administrator didn't get up in the morning and say, I want to get rid of our only working spacecraft. But I think we have a tendency to see NASA really as being in charge of their own destiny in a way that they're not. And so we blame them for those decisions that we don't agree with. We say they're not doing enough. They've lost their vision. I mean, everyone I've ever met who's affiliated with NASA, they are not short on vision. They have amazing ideas of what they could do if we would if Congress would help them pay for it, if, if taxpayers were interested in paying for it. Um, but Congress has a lot of control, in fact, over the projects that NASA undertakes. So shuttle itself as a project had to be approved by NASA, back, I mean, approved by Congress back in 1972. And by approving that, they were sort of promising to pay for it over the years it would take to develop it and fly it. So, yeah, I think there is a feedback loop where 
we don't give NASA enough money. You know, we, through our congressional representatives, force NASA to scale down their plans. They do the best they can with what they're given. Is I mean, people people will definitely want to argue with me about this. I think they do a lot with the money that we give them. Um, but then we blame them, like, well, you're you're still only going to low Earth orbit, and now you're not doing anything. Um, we want to blame them for those decisions that are kind of being passed from the taxpayers through our congressional representatives on onto the budget. That's how the decisions are really made. What parenthetically, what are some of the vision? Could you articulate some of those that NASA would do if they had the money? They, I mean, there's no end to what they would do if they had the money. At the end of Apollo, there were already plans underway for a Mars project. There were um, scientists and engineers working full-time on what is our Mars transport going to look like? How are we going to construct it? It's going to be so big that we can't construct it on Earth and then launch it. Our Mars transport has to be constructed in space. That means we need a space station to construct it with. I mean, they had figured all this out. They thought it through. They'd even calculated what are going to be the best days to launch toward Mars? What are the days when Earth and Mars are going to be closest together? Um, so toward the end of the Apollo program, Werner von Braun, who was the uh, rocket engineer who was really responsible for getting us to the moon in a lot of ways, he was in charge of the Saturn V project, he made a presentation to, I think it was the um, Space Appropriations Committee in Congress, and he started his presentation by saying, the first rocket to Mars is going to launch on this date in 1980. He'd figured out the date, and it was, you know, 10 years hence. That was very impressive. He knew exactly what he wanted to do and how he was going to do it, but he hadn't quite seen the writing on the wall yet, or maybe he did and he was trying anyway. But um, toward the end of Apollo, the, the interest was, was waning, and especially the interest in the cost was, was definitely waning. So we, we never got anywhere close. But... We've, we've had people who've wanted to undertake these huge, ambitious projects and know exactly how they would do it um, if, if Congress would only get on board, if, if we taxpayers would only get on board. But yeah, that, and that's probably the, the thing that captures the imagination most. Certainly mine is landing people on Mars. That'd be the, you know, probably the next thing. It is, you know, it's the science fiction next step. I think some more scientific-minded people have other things they want to do first or other places they want to go or are more interested in um, robotic missions and, and probes. We certainly get um, a lot more scientific data back for per dollar spent when we send robots and probes instead of human beings who are, you know, very delicate and hard to launch without destroying them, and we need oxygen and water and all of that. Um, but I, I think this kind of ambition... We, we all share. We, we all have different visions of what we might want to do, but everyone who's interested in spaceflight has what we feel like is, is the next obvious step. And for a lot of people, it's Mars. Um, Buzz Aldrin wears a T-shirt. Often I see him on social media that says, get your butt to Mars, if it doesn't say butt. <laughs> right. um, he, he, he wants to go to Mars. He wants to see someone, this project, at least be underway, and he has made himself a spokesperson for that, which mm. I think is fantastic. Maybe we need to, uh, you know, do a better marketing job. I, <laughs> I love this passage. I'll just read it briefly. In an era of budget defensiveness, even books for children tended to highlight NASA innovations that have proven themselves useful on Earth. Weather satellites, metal alloys, advances in microchips. Velcro always always gets special attention. And I want to shout backward into the past. Stop emphasizing Velcro. People don't care that much about Velcro. <laughs> Uh, and you go on to say, people care about the 
unutterable awe of American heroes stabbing into the heavens on columns of fire. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is an urge to kind of defend the spending in terms of what, what has been returned to Earth. And, you know, I shouldn't be so reductive as to just make fun of the Velcro. There have been a lot of innovations that have been meaningful to various industries, um, you know, including medicine, I mean, life-saving industries. So I, I shouldn't always be so lighthearted about it. But I, I do think that kind of advertising why NASA is worth supporting just in terms of returns to shareholders in that sense, you know, returns to taxpayers, is not, that's not actually what it's about. You know, I think it's fantastic that some of NASA's innovations have, have come back and, and been useful on Earth, but that's not why we went in the first place, and that's not why we would ever justify paying the billions of dollars to get to Mars. If what you want to do is develop Velcro or develop, you know, certain types of polymers or, you know, all, all of the innovations that, that NASA's accomplished, you could do all of that cheaper by investing in research on Earth. I hear the same thing about inspiring school children. Like, well, we should keep flying in space because children are inspired by that, and then they want to become astronauts, and so they do their math and science homework. I, I definitely see that happening, and I think that's fantastic, but that can't be the reason we're doing it. If you want to inspire school children, you would take billions of dollars and put them into the schools and support better math and science instruction in schools. So I feel like all of these sort of justifications that aren't really about the thing itself are, in a weird way, they're counteractive. Because if those are the things you want, you can do those things much more cheaply in another way. If what you want is to go to space, NASA's terrific at doing that. And so I, I think we should be willing to pay for that just because of, of exactly what it is, not because of these other kind of ancillary benefits that, that might take place. Here's an email from Joe. He says, good point about the lack of adversity or enemy to propel us into financing NASA. The reality is that we do have a common enemy, quote-unquote, and that is climate change. NASA has made a great contribution with its satellite program that looks at the process of our atmosphere and oceans from space and how the Earth's climate is changing. I think if Americans took climate science seriously, then NASA would get more funding it needs to combat this real threat to our way of life. That's Joe. Yeah, I think that's true. NASA has been um, really important, not just in achievements in space, but also in understanding our own planet. And I, I think that's something a lot of people don't realize. A lot of the good data that we do have about climate change comes from NASA and projects that are, are dedicated to looking at the Earth from space and figuring out exactly what's going on and using a lot of different types of data. Um, it is troubling that recently Congress either threatened to or, or accomplished this. I, I should know which, and I, I don't because I haven't really read the news yet today, but um, Congress wanted to shut down the climate change project within NASA specifically, which is troubling to a lot of people that does feel politically motivated. And the idea that, you know, if you, if you stop gathering this data, then you won't get the bad news, then that, that, that seems very troubling. And it, mm -hmm. it does seem to be shackling NASA from, from doing one of the things that they've been doing best, which is looking at the Earth. We'll take another break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk a bit about cost. You, you do some comparisons, uh, comparing uh, the Challenger, or not Challenger, the shuttle program in total to uh, the cost of uh, providing air conditioning for uh, soldiers in, in Iraq. Talk about that. And then some hopeful things. You talk about... Uh, 
the reaction to uh, Curiosity, the, the Mars rover, is, is heartening to you. Talk about that, and I'll have you read another passage, uh, poetic passage uh, from the prologue. More following the break. We're talking with Margaret Dean, author of Leaving Orbit, Notes from the Last Days of American Spaceflight. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Monday's PT is brought to you by the number three. We'll go to a concert in Copenhagen to hear the Violin Concerto Number no. 3 by Mozart, Nikolai Snyder soloing with the Danish Radio Orchestra, and from the Aspen Festival, Alisa Weilerstein plays the Cello Suite Number no. 3 by Bach. On the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, featuring Charlie's Aunt. In addition to seminars, tours, and more, all part of the festival experience. Information at bard.org. My guest is Margaret Dean. Her book is Leaving Orbit, Notes from the Last Days of American Space Flight. In early 2011, uh, she traveled to Cape Canaveral for NASA's last three space shuttle launches in order to bear witness to the end of an era. And in her new book, Leaving Orbit, uh, she serves as our guide to Florida Space Coast, to the history of NASA, taking measure of what American spaceflight has achieved, meeting NASA workers, astronauts, space fans, gathering answers to an important question. What does it mean that a spacefaring nation won't be going to space anymore? You're welcome to join us here at 1-800-826-1495, toll-free. And you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. That's upraxcess at gmail.com. I wonder if you could uh, make for some of those cost comparisons, uh, Margaret Dean. You you compare the, the cost of the shuttle program to, uh, to a couple of other things. I, I write about, in the book, the experience of trying to talk with my students here at University of Tennessee, um, college students who were born... Um, in the early 90s and trying to talk with them about what they understand about spaceflight, um, partly as a way of just trying to access what what is the current understanding of where we are and, and why we are here. I think we um, speculate a lot about what people know or what people believe, and we don't actually know what our fellow Americans know and believe oftentimes. Um, so I thought speaking with my students was, was a good way to start with this. And what I found was were just some huge misunderstandings among young people, but among my own generation as well, about um, what spaceflight has cost, how many people have gone, how long we've been flying, um, even the fact that there have been different spacecraft. My, a lot of my students had the misunderstanding that there has only ever been one spacecraft, the shuttle, and that the shuttle went to the moon, that the shuttle's capable of going to Mars. Um, and that's really troubling, of course, because if people think that we already had a spacecraft that could go to Mars, that makes them more less likely to want to pay for a real spacecraft that can go to Mars. Um, so I have a chapter in the book about these talks with my students and, and these misunderstandings. But one of the things these, these talks resulted in was trying to impress upon them what the current situation really is. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's just hard to conceptualize large amounts of money. You know, when students hear... For instance, each flight of a shuttle costs $200 million. That sounds like just an insanely huge amount of money to them, um, and it is compared to, say, you know, the money that they will earn throughout their lifetimes, that sort of thing. But compared to other things that, that our country spends money on, it can be put into 
into context easily. So one of the things that I, I told them was that all of NASA's budget in the year 2011, not just and shuttle was just a small percentage of that, but NASA's entire budget in the year 2011 cost less than what it cost to provide air conditioning for troops in Iraq. Hmm. Yeah, that's now, a that's pretty stark comparison. I want, our, I want our troops to have air conditioning, and I'm sure you do too. Yes. Um, I, I have a good friend who's a veteran, and he's explained to me how very important it was to have air conditioning in Iraq. But when we talk about expense that way, you know, we're not even talking about the entire military or even a small piece of the military. We're talking about a tiny line item in what we spend on defense is more than all of NASA. Um, another comparison that I gave to my students was that the bank bailouts of 2008 cost more than the entire 50-year history of NASA. So every single thing NASA has ever done, starting with our first satellites, starting with our first steps into space, up to the moon landings, the shuttle, the International Space Station, all of the science, everything NASA's ever done costs less than those bank bailouts. Hmm. So making those kinds of comparisons has a way of kind of putting into perspective $200 million for one shuttle launch sounds like a lot of money for a nation like ours that has the kind of financial might that we do. We can choose to spend money on big things that we think are important, kind of puts it into a different perspective. You also write that um, spaceflight can be made to seem the paradigm or negation of any political ideology. And you hear phrases like, well, we can land a man on the moon, we can, you know, dot, dot, dot. Or a nation that can, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this this does get uh, you can use it any any which way. Uh, I wonder. Um, if I could have you read another passage, a very po- poetic passage. This is from page six in the prologue again, and uh, it's in the middle of the page. As I grew up, is how it starts in just those two paragraphs there. This, this is uh, is talking about your visits to Air and Space Museum. As I grew up, we kept going back. On a visit in 1985, we watched The Dream is Alive, a film shot by astronauts on three different space shuttle missions in the museum's IMAX theater. The camera pans around the empty cockpit of the space shuttle Discovery, where along the far wall, two large bright blue bundles float horizontally. The camera approaches and finds sleeping people. One of them is a woman of surprising beauty, her dark curly hair floating about her. This is Judith Resnick. She sleeps, or pretends to sleep, Her long lashes rest on her cheeks. Her tanned arms linger in the air before her, and the look of peace on her face is captivating. Judith Resnick sleeps in space. I fell in love. My father, brother, and I came back to see this film over and over, and I practically memorized it frame for frame. The launch scenes, landing scenes, footage of Earth turning outside the windows of the space shuttle, scenes of mundane domestic life lived inside the spaceship, smiling astronauts in shorts and sock feet. They work, eat, chat in their headsets with Houston, float companionably together. Judith Resnick sleeps in space. Hmm. Yeah, beautiful image. And then you write, six months later, January 1986, Challenger explodes. Uh, Judith Resnick is on board. And it highlights the the uh, the danger. In fact, uh, one of the interesting facts from the book is that um, President Nixon... Uh, had his speechwriter prepare a speech in case uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had died on the moon. Yeah, that was a very real possibility. Different people put different percentages on that possibility. Um, the, the people closest to it, including their command module pilot, uh, Michael Collins, who stayed in orbit around the moon while uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went to the surface, he placed the success of the entire mission at about 50-50. So 
he, at least, it, it was in a place to know, thought there was a significant risk that Neil Aldrin, that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would not be able to arise off the moon again after after their day exploring the moon. So, um, yeah, the the speech that William Sapphire, who was a terrific speechwriter, had come up with for Nixon in case of this eventuality was declassified just a few years ago. And it's it's a beautiful speech. It's very moving. Um, and it uh, sort of plays on the idea that uh, we, we came in peace for all mankind, which is written on the plaque. Um, these men who came in peace for all mankind will now rest in peace on the moon. Hmm. It's it's kind of chilling, but he he's he's trying to make something beautiful out of this tragedy that that luckily did not come to pass. We just have about a minute left. Uh, despite the danger, uh, you know, demonstrable danger, and then of course Columbia burned up on reentry. Uh, um, there's no shortage of people who want to go to Mars. You know, and when plans are floated, there you know thousands of people want to sign up. Um, I wonder if we could close with, uh, on a hopeful note, as you do in your epilogue, you take the extreme interest in in curiosity, the Mars Roser, uh, rover, as a, as a hopeful sign. Absolutely. I mean, I think NASA has done just a terrific job of telling the story of what they do, getting people interested in what they do, and most recently they've been using, using social media in a really smart way to get people excited about what they do. And so I was really heartened by the enormous interest in a, a robot that was landed on Mars Curiosity, and people have really kind of personified it. We imagine a personality for it. You can check in every day, see what Curiosity is seeing on Mars, see what it's doing. Um, and that gives me hope, too, that people are sort of learning how to take interest in what NASA does in a different way. Maybe we don't need astronauts anymore to project our feelings onto. We can become involved and excited about uh, about robotic missions as well. We'll leave it there. Our guest has been Margaret Dean, Leaving Orbit. Notes from the last days of American space flights out from Greywell Press. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's go out with uh, just a bit of uh, Neil Armstrong on the moon. We're good. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And uh, we are out of time. Leave it there. But uh, very interesting uh, facts in, in the book, Leaving Orbit. Thanks for listening today. Coming up uh, tomorrow, Finding the Good, Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small Town Obituary Writer. We'll talk with uh, two writers on this subject. How do you sum up a life? That's coming up tomorrow. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Utah Streams offer excellent year-round fishing opportunities for every level of angler. According to the Department of Natural Resources, Utah's waters are home to approximately 80 different species of fish, but it is the trout fishing that is the biggest attraction for fishermen. Of the trout species swimming in our rivers and lakes, the cutthroat trout is a local favorite and the only trout native to the state. The cutthroat trout represents the most diverse trout species in North America. They are freshwater fish of the Salmonidae family that live in cold, clear streams and lakes across the West. The cutthroat trout are distinguished from other trout species by the two red slashes prominently striping the lower jaw after which they are named. All cutthroat trout share a single common ancestor, but historic population isolation gave rise to 14 subspecies, each endemic to their own geographic region and river drainage. There are four subspecies that exist in Utah. 
Only three of these are considered native to the state. The Colorado River cutthroat, the Yellowstone cutthroat, and Utah's state fish, the Bonneville cutthroat. In Utah, the Colorado River cutthroat trout can be found in some of the smaller streams and tributaries of the Green River, the San Juan River, and the Colorado River drainages. Their bright coloration and posterior black spotting distinguish these cutthroats from others. Pure native Yellowstone cutthroat trout are present in small numbers in the streams of the north slope of the Raft River Mountains in northwestern Utah. However, this species is more widely distributed across the state due to extensive stocking. Yellowstone cutthroat trout can be differentiated by large-sized black spots concentrated near the tail and their gold, gray, and copper tones. The Bonneville cutthroat trout evolved in the Bonneville Basin of Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, and Nevada. Its primary ancestors were a population of lake-dwelling cutthroat trout living in the late Pleistocene aged Lake Bonneville. The Bonneville cutthroat trout is less vividly colored and has spots that are more sparsely and evenly distributed across the body than other cutthroats. Thought to be extinct in the 1970s, populations of the Bonneville cutthroat trout are now estimated to exist in around 35% of their historic range, including the nearby Weber and Provo rivers. Like so many species, the native cutthroat trout of Utah are under significant pressure due to drought, habitat loss, disease, and competition with non-native species. Though only the Colorado River trout cutthroat is included in the Utah State Sensitive Species List, conservation of all of Utah's native cutthroat populations is a focal point for state wildlife resource managers. For Wild About Utah, I'm Anna Bankson. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. The new documentary, Shake the Dust, takes a look at breakdancing and the special influence it has on the inner city slums of the world. I was trying to tell a story about everyday kids in these places and give them a microphone to say what they wanted to say. A conversation with the director on the next Marketplace from APM. Monday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.